This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Farm Tank. I just want to start this episode off by telling everyone how extremely grateful I am for all the new subscribers and great feedback I've gotten in the last few weeks. I just encourage everybody to keep forwarding this out and getting the information out to everyone as possible. I just really want to uh, do this to help people become more successful in their future. But today I have the pleasure of speaking with Braden Hootie, who is a managing partner of the Hootie Group. The Hootie Group is a third-generation family-owned farm involved in agriculture, real estate, development property, and other investments in the United States and Canada. Braden was an active member of the management team that won the Canada Association of Ag Retailers in 2011. He was also a top three finalist for Top Producer of the Year by Farm Journal in 2010 for the U.S. Farm Operation. He's now part of the iSelect Selection Committee. He was the former president of Hootie Soils Group, Hootie Farms, Capital 7 Corporation, and MBJ Farms. He currently serves as the president of the Hootie Group. And with that, I'd like to welcome Braden to the show. Thanks for having me. Anytime, my friend. Always a pleasure having you. A uh, pretty funny story I'm going to start off with on this podcast. I was talking to Braden on the phone, and I'm like, hey, man, what do I got to do to get you on this podcast uh, coming up? Uh, we're talking. We're talking a little bit about real estate, investments, stuff like that. Uh, time goes on, and he's like, hey, crazy story. Sends me a picture. He is in the picture with Darius Rutger and Lady Annabellum. I was like, wow, that is absolutely nuts. So can you tell me how it was meeting Darius Rutger and Lady Annabellum last week? What was something you took away from this experience? Well, it, it was a it was a funny story because I had uh, it was a spontaneous uh, Thursday afternoon. I was meeting with some of my commercial real estate brokers, catching up on a deal, and my phone rings from a good network and buddy here in Scottsdale, and he said, uh, "I've got extra tickets to the show tonight. Let's let's go see the concert." And I was extremely reluctant to go. I had a flight to catch the next morning, and. Uh, he said, be ready in an hour. There's a bunch of us picking you up. Well, little did I know that we walked straight up to uh, Darius's tour bus, and my one friend uh, knew him personally, and uh, they were friends. We had, a, we had a chance to visit with the band before the show, meet them, uh, go through their pre-show ritual, and everybody had a shot, and, and just the most down-to-earth people I've ever met. We had the opportunity to watch both of the shows, a uh, great concert. And then afterwards, we went and spent probably another three or four hours just visiting with them, talking everything between uh, philanthropy and giving back, uh, what kind of keeps them motivated, just and everything else under the sun. It was, it was just a humbling experience to meet some of these people and learn where they came from, what you know, what they had to do to get to where they are, what they're doing now and what's important to them. And it was an experience I didn't appreciate, but or, sorry, didn't appreciate that I didn't expect. And uh, at the end of the day, just getting to learn some uh, 
some things from some really cool people and uh, just realizing that everybody is on the same page and, and humble and friendly. Well, tell me something that motivated Darius Rucker that he was talking about on the bus with you. He just talked about some of his, you know, some of his hardships and challenges, uh, you know, early in his music career, uh, kind of talked about his journey through the Hootie and the Blowfish stages. Uh, and then, you know, the hard decision to go off on his own and, and go into the country space. And, you know, you could just see his face light up while he was telling the story, even though there was a lot of challenges and peaks and valleys. He's like, you know, you can just tell that he, he really loves what he does and, and uh, he was proud to share the story. Definitely a big fan of Darius Rucker. But uh, let's go ahead and jump into the podcast and get right into it. Many people perceive the Hooties as a family who has always had a lot of money. I think a lot of people associate generational family businesses with having a lot of money. Can you tell the listeners if that's really the case and exactly where the family has come from? Sure. Um, you know, to some degree that, you know, that perception carries on in, in many different family businesses and different areas around the, the countries. And I'm sure a lot of people go through it. I, I think one of the things they don't realize is the, the challenges and adversities that happen behind the scenes and, and everybody just sees the surface level stuff. Um, you know, to, to answer your question on where the, the hooties came from, uh, my grandfather started farming in the, in the 1940s in Northeast Saskatchewan. He was always an aggressive farmer and, 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 uh, you know, eventually farmed a lot of acres for that time period. Uh, him and him and my grandmother literally started with nothing living out of a one bedroom granary. And, uh, you know, through his time, he went through many challenges, cycles, ups and downs, weather, market challenges, risks. Uh, but, you know, he always persevered. His business model was more weighted to leasing land than actually owning it. So he, you know, at the, at the end of the day, he didn't have a lot, but he did a lot. And, uh, what it did was provide my, my father and my uncle the opportunity in the mid eighties to join the operation. There, there wasn't, uh, many acres to transfer over. Like I said, it was leased land. So when my dad and my uncle got involved, it was, uh, I, I, off of memory, I believe it was approximately 700 acres. And, uh, you know, they, they, my, my grandfather wanted to retire and they implemented a more corporate model to the farming operation as, as well as started Hootie Soils at, at that same time. Um, the, the access to fertilizer and crop protection was a newer concept in that area, wasn't readily available, and, and they seen an opportunity to uh, not only get it for their own use, but, uh, you know, provide other area farmers with, with services and products that, that nobody can access. And, uh, you know, so at that time, they didn't start with, with much of anything. And uh, for the listeners that, that remember the, the mid to late 80s, that was a time of, of crazy inflation, high interest rates, times were challenging, commodity prices were tough. And there was many years that they persevered just to make it through. Um, you know, through that perseverance, they aggressively grew the operations through those challenging times, through the mid-80s into the mid-90s, and, uh, you know, all the while pl managed to stick to their plan and their objectives. And uh, there was an opportunity in approximately the mid-90s when farmland prices bottomed around North America, and there was a window to start acquiring farmland and prices, you know, prices that made sense, and they began to purchase more land in both 
Saskatchewan and the U.S. at the same time, uh, all all the while, while while operating the crop input retail business. So I, you know, I think from that transition of the mid '80s to at least the mid '90s, times were extremely challenging and tough for them. And you know, we were still um, me and my siblings and my cousin that was involved. We were still young, but we uh, had the opportunity to kind of watch what they were going through and, and watch those challenges and, and times certain, certainly weren't easy. I think the Hootie story is absolutely incredible. It's amazing what you guys started with and, and what you have now. I think it's a true inspiration to me personally, and I think it's going to touch a lot of other people too in the agriculture business. One question I want to ask you though is I've heard some rumors that every generation in your family played a large role and did a lot to transform your family business. Can you tell me exactly what you did to transform this business? Sure. Um, you know, probably, I, I could probably answer that, that question threefold, and it would go back a couple generations to, to get me to where, you know, I could answer the question for myself. But um, looking, looking through that, those time periods, uh, it, it all started with my grandfather showing, you know, resi- resiliency and persistence and being aggressive and instilling a hard work ethic, all while having fun and taking time for family and friends and being a leader in the, in, in the industry and a positive example and role model, which then, you know, uh, pivoted with my dad and uncle applying a more formal and corporate structure with plans and goals and objectives and growth in mind. Even though we were a family farm, uh, we operated it like a, a true business, uh, you know, I know there's, there's a little bit of stigma around the word corporate, but um, we put a corporate structure to it to, to operate it as best as we possibly could. And, and, and you know, and they did over that time. I believe things pivoted again uh, when, when our, you know, the third generation joined, which was myself and my brother and my sister and my cousin, um, everybody brought different skill sets and unique abilities to the table. The business went from a board of two to a board of six. Uh, everybody was equal partners and had skin in the game. So we all played an active and crucial role in, in the companies. And uh, we were able to get more done, expand our opportunities and capabilities, really trust in each other that everyone had each other's best interests at heart. And uh, I, I believe this was a turning point. For, for all of us that gave us the opportunity to look at things different and provide a perspective to branch out. It was, um, we would split our, our responsibilities within our, within our unique abilities. And some of us were looking at investments and different opportunities while, while others were running the day-to-day operations and, and uh, somebody else would be doing the grain marketing and, and the hedging and, it just it allowed us to open up our minds to look at other opportunities and see what was out there, all while, while applying a, a long-term cyclical uh, strategy. You know, where are we at in the market today? Where was the previous highs? Where was the previous lows? You know, how long should we be in this space for? And what we did was we really adopted a model from, you know, basically from day-to-day or from an operational business model to more of a, let's look at this thing from an investment and look at our, our P&L from a perspective of supporting these assets and these investments and uh, knowing that, you know, we always want to be sell- sellers at, at the highs and, and buyers at the lows of whatever industry that we're in. 
Okay, you just touched on opportunity uh, a little bit earlier, what you were talking about with your dad and your grandpa in the 90s. But one crazy question I wanted to ask you today that I really wanted to make sure I ask you is your family has taken advantage of a lot of opportunities throughout their life, whether it's in farmland or real estate properties. Can you just share with us some insight on the best strategy of taking advantage of these opportunities? Is it as simple as just being in the right place at the right time? Um, you know, I don't think we have an exact strategy. Times are always changing. You know, uh, politi- you know whether it's um, geopolitical events, uh, technology, everything's moving so fast right now that you need to, I don't think you could stick to just an exact plan, but one, you know, I think we've went through a lot of changes over the years in a few different industries and a couple different countries, and, and we learned a lot over that time. I think there's a few things that helped us take advantage of those opportunities, and, and, and we continue to learn and adapt in order to take uh, advantage of new opportunities. I think the first one it was, you know, the experience of going through the farmland depreciation pullback in the late 80s and early 90s, having it bottom out and turn the corner to the upside you know, at that time, uh, my dad and my uncle were, you know, essentially farming. And, and that, was, that was their life. That was their business. Uh, through that, there was lessons in the cycles and timing uh, that had them pay closer attention in order to have the confidence to understand where they were in that particular cycle, how to get through it, how to work with the bankers, how to work with, uh, you know, making the financials work and making the decision to, uh, you know, aggressively start buying farmland after a a really challenging period. So, you know, probably secondly, as, as we all know, the commodity markets are extremely volatile and cyclical. And uh, through all those years growing grain and ha- having to market it, we paid very close attention to the market, studied them as much as possible, relied on people like Kevin Van Trump and other analysts for timely information. This had us change our perspective on cycles and timing and, uh, you know, almost give give us the perspective that it's, it's always easier to be a seller at the highs and a buyer at the lows. I, I know that sounds easy and there's always an emotional or a, or a generational uh, attachment to some of these businesses or these assets or uh, whatever it may be. And once we, once we were able to identify our strategy and saying, you know, let's remove that emotional component and look at this as truly an asset class or, a, you know, a business, it allowed us to, to make easier decisions, whether to be buyers or sellers or sell our third generation farm or sell our second generation re, uh, crop input retail business. When we were making those, once we adopted that type of mentality, it allowed all six of us to make those decisions. You know, it wasn't easy, but at the same time, we knew we were doing it for the right reasons and it gave us confidence to, to move forward. Um, obviously, nothing ever works out perfectly perfectly and mistakes or wrong timing decisions happen and you know that's life but at the end of the day if you can have more winners than losers you'll make out just fine uh i think the key to it though is bottom line taking a long-term cyclical approach to things versus a short-term approach with blinders on it's important to know all the direct and indirect risks um you know that that was one of the things that that just helped us identify from a, a big picture perspective. Uh, and you know, I'm sure we'll get into it later. But another you know kind of current example of how we do that today is uh, we're currently in, invested in the real estate market. And what gave us the confidence at that time is 
is we studied the general market and said, you know, what were the highs in 2007? Where did we bottom in 2010, 2011? Where are we today? Are we still, or, you know, are we buyers? Are we sellers? Are we standing aside right now? And we can look at things from a very objective perspective and have confidence whether we're in the right place or not. And if we need to pivot or adjust, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do just that. So by having that kind of outlook has, has allowed us to look at many different opportunities and, and see, you know, where we should be when, when we, sh- when we sh- should be looking at them and, and how we should be uh, going about them. My dad always preaches to me uh, to always have dry powder, he likes to call it, and that's uh, mm-hmm. set aside. But that's uh, money. He, he likes to call that money set aside for uh, opportunities to take advantage of those things like you got in with the farmland and real estate. How important is, uh, you would say, to have money set aside to take advantage of these opportunities? Uh, extremely important. And, but, you know, it comes down to a timing thing as well and understanding where you are in, in the you know, particular cycles that you're watching. Uh, you know, when we, were, when we were going through our uh, aggressive acquisition of farmland, we didn't keep much dry powder around. We used all, you know, as much dry powder as we could to uh, leverage ourselves because we believed we were in the right time of the cycle to take advantage and use leverage as our friend in order for us to grow and parlay things as quickly and aggressively as we could. Uh, but, you know, towards the end of that cycle, pulling some chips off the table, uh, whether it was selling off a little bit to have some dry powder for new opportunities or selling it all and having a lot of dry powder for a completely different opportunity is, is what we did, you know, when we transitioned from agriculture to real estate. We divested all of our, real, our agriculture assets and, uh, you know, took, took what you call dry powder uh, down to the, you know, the Phoenix metro area and started buying the uh, uh, apartment and condo complexes and, uh, at a time when there was still blood in the streets. That's a lot of good insight on taking advantage of opportunities and how you just can't have money set aside to take advantage of these opportunities. There's a lot more that goes into it. Another question I wanted to ask you in this podcast is, I know your family was very successful in the ag retail space. You guys did a lot of great things. You won that prize in 2011. What's the best piece of knowledge you could pass along to someone working in the space now to help better their business in the future? Well, uh, anybody that's familiar with the space would agree that it's a very competitive human resource and capital intensive business. Uh, It taught us a lot of things from, you know, structured business management, how important it is to take care of your people and treat them like family and not employees. You know, we we had a saying that uh, our team didn't work for us, they worked with us. Uh, customer service, adding value, uh, buying the raw materials properly at the best prices to, you know, hopefully make a margin uh, from marketing and advertising, vendor relationships, and all the other components of it. I think the biggest piece that we took pride in uh, that helped us, you know, build our customer base, uh, build our volume, and, uh, you know, it was we, we adopted a mission statement that our team and, and uh, that our team lived and breathed by, and that was adding true value to our customers. It was a it was a three part process which was help them maximize their productivity, 
help them maximize what they get paid for their productivity and help them build their balance sheet. So, you know, what I mean by helping them maximize their productivity is we had a full staff of agronomists that, uh, that were on our customers' fields providing uh, insight, uh, knowledge, helping them grow as many bushels as possible while providing them with the newest and best technologies and genetics and crop inputs, micronutrients, etc. So that, that was, that was one, one part of the business. Um, another part of the business was help them maximize what they get paid for their productivity. So what we do is we, we, we had a, a, an informal structure where we call them our board of directors, where we kind of adopted six of the industry's best analysts. And we would study that information on a daily basis and then, you know, on a, on a quarterly basis, break it down for our customers into uh, an executive summary of where the current markets are. You know, when should we be selling these crops? What's, what's the best advantages to take? Basically, you know, trying to sell them in the, in the top third of the market as, as uh, often as, and best as we could. And we spent a lot of time working with our customers on their on their grain marketing strategies. We didn't physically sell their grain for them. We would just provide all the insight that we possibly could and then let them make their own decisions. And then uh, lastly, helping them build their balance sheets. Uh, you know, we would, we would help them with semi-annual financial statements. So we would put together market value uh, balance sheets for them and, uh, you know, compile their, their income and expense statements and, inventory lists, equipment lists, and basically have them walk out of our office with a full binder of uh, key in, key financial information that they could use to, to really understand their operations, where they currently sat, work with their bankers, work with their accountants, and uh, really support their operations from a financial perspective. We also did extensive work in third-party financing, you know, to help them with their uh, credit needs for for crop inputs and, and other stuff like that. So by, by pooling that all together, you know, if our customers were making money, we were making money. And the, the relationships that we built over the years with our, our team and customers will, will be a fond memory of ours uh, forever. It was, uh, it was a great experience and, uh, and a lot of fun. I think that's a lot of great information for someone in the ag retail space and something they can really benefit from. Before I dive a little bit more into about you, I want you to tell me a bit about what everyone in the family does in the business now. Sure. There's, uh, there's still the original six of us involved, so that it consists of uh, uh, my dad, Ben, my uncle, Greg, myself, my sister, Fallon, my uh, younger brother, James, and, and my cousin, Nathan. And um, so we, we still have a, a formal board. Everyone's involved in the, in the major decisions. We always said, uh, you know, more heads are better than one. And uh, we always believe that everyone brings a different, pers- different and unique perspective to the table, which allows us to make as many of the right decisions as possible. So um, myself and my sister, for the most part, see, oversee uh, operations and investments uh, primarily real estate right now. Uh, we're doing a little bit of investing in the venture capital space as well. And uh, uh, the others are involved from a board level and uh, we still keep in close touch with each other and, and try to be making the right decisions as, as we go forward. 
sounds like you guys really work well together as a family. Same, uh, similar to ours, I would say. Let's move aside from your career a bit, though. Tell me a little bit about you. I've heard you do a lot for charity. Can you tell me a little bit about this? Why is giving away money to the less fortunate important to you? We've we've always gave back to the community when we're in business. Uh, you know, in, in Saskatchewan, we always felt it was important, and uh, kids were always our focus. So even even through times, you know, when 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 times weren't the best financially, uh, we always thought it was important to be constantly giving back. So, you know, our, our local communities where we had egg retail businesses, whether it be Norquay, Sturgis, or, you know, Campsack, Saskatchewan, we would uh, support the local sports teams, you know, help them buy some jerseys, uh, support the local hockey clubs, curling clubs, uh, anything that was going on where the community was putting an effort and, and, and needed a hand. We always thought that was important. And, and the more we did it, the more we realized how important it was. We, we learned from a couple, you know, people in business that were much more successful than us on how important it was and adopted some of their models in terms of percentages to give back and why it was important to them and continued to evolve and, and develop our own model for what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And uh, it's, just, it's just important to us in general. I, I feel it's a social responsibility and... Uh, over the years, we've we've uh, started two two charities of you know that we help spearhead one be, one's in uh, Saskatchewan, one's in Phoenix, Arizona. We also do Christmas initiatives in in all the places that we conduct business. So I, it was you know Saskatchewan, Phoenix, Burlington, Colorado, Cabo San Lucas, uh, Brazil, and uh, we just feel it's important. You've told me a little bit about that snowmobile trip you guys do for charity every year. Can you tell me a little bit more about what this event looks like? Sure. Well, we, we call it the, the Big Buck Run, and uh, I'm, I'm at a loss for how many years we've been doing it for. It's, it's either 11 or 12 now, 11 or 12 years now. And it, 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 it started when, uh, you know, it was the beginning of March, and quite honestly, we needed an excuse to get out of the office one day. And, uh, you know, up in Saskatchewan in March, there's still a lot of snow. And we said, let's, let's go snowmobiling for the day. Let's pull 50 guys together. Let's, let's barbecue a good lunch. Let's go snowmobiling for the afternoon. And let's end up at this really cool hunting lodge in the evening, barbecue some steaks and cook some fish. And, and let's just network with each other. You know, it was other, other farmers, other, uh, business owners, uh, industry leaders and let's just go have some fun uh when when it started we had no intention of raising any money uh we we did the first year everybody had an absolute blast uh so we said let's make this an annual so we're all there at the exact same time the following year second annual having a blast as usual and we learned that there was this local uh girl from our community that uh was diagnosed with leukemia and uh, somebody stood up at the, at the dinner and said, why don't we all throw some money in a hat to uh, support this family through their challenges? The hat went around and we were absolutely blown away by the generosity of the people in that room. And it, we said, well, maybe we're onto something here. 
So we continued to have an annual event and, uh, over, over the years, we, it continues to grow and grow. Uh, we have a, have a blast snowmobiling. We, we end up at the same place every year, cooking steak and fish. And, uh, we have a live auction and we raise money for local families in need, uh, uh, primarily being children, which, uh, you know, these, these children get sick. The families are challenged financially to get them through. They have other kids. It's, it's hard on them. And basically giving those families a support network to know that they have somebody behind them and, and have their backs to, uh, to help them through their challenges. So it's, it's been an extremely successful initiative. And uh, since then, we've started a, a very similar charity with some friends and, and business contacts in, in Arizona doing the exact same thing. Very cool. Very cool. I talked a little bit with Braden about me going up to Canada this year and being involved in the event and giving back to charity a little bit myself. I think the main goal of the event is obviously to give back to charity, but I think for me, another goal is not to end up in the hospital from losing my mind on one of these snowmobiles. Another question I wanted to ask you, Braden, is I was doing a little background research on you. And I saw a picture of you with Garth Brooks at an event. Can you tell me a little bit about this event and what you took away from Garth to make you more successful? Sure. Well, we, we were obviously with our philanthropic efforts. Um, we got asked by a good friend and um, you know business associate of ours to help support the new uh, Saskatoon Children's Hospital. And we were invited to a fundraising event where Garth Brooks was going to be present. Yeah, Garth has a, it puts in a, a substantial amount of money and effort into the children's hospitals around the U.S. and Canada, and he creates what's called the Kids Zone. And it's just providing the kids a positive environment for when they're in the hospital to, you know, kind of lighten the, lighten the mood in the hospital, give them things and activities to do and, Kind of, kind of puts his mark within the hospital to to really benefit the children. So we we were invited to this event. We show up in Saskatoon, not knowing what to expect, and he's just walking through the crowd. We had a chance to spend fifteen or twenty minutes with him, and just chat about his efforts and what he's doing and why it's important to him. And it was just a really humbling experience. Uh, just a really down to earth guy. And, uh, you know, if he can be putting in that kind of effort and putting his own time into things, um, you know, a person at that level, I, I believe we all can. So, you know, it fit within our wheelhouse of supporting kids. And when we were asked uh, to participate, we, we gladly jumped on board and, and supported the effort. I totally agree with you on that one, Braden. Another thing I want to talk about is I know you go to Sturgis a lot. I know you went up there with my parents one year. They act like they had a lot of fun. Can you give our listeners a little bit more insight into why this is a this is an event you attend every year? <laughs> well, I guess first and foremost, Sturgis is always a fun time. It's a great party, but um, we I, I think the best way to break it down is the energy of the event is something I haven't experienced anywhere else. You have anywhere from 600,000 to a million people a year uh, in a you know in a town that's normally 5,000 people, uh, with with all uh, different statuses of people you know that show up for this thing. Uh, we've met 
doctors, dentists, farmers, investors, uh, full-on gang members, and everyone in between. And all these people get together to have, to, you know, ride motorcycles and have fun. In all the years I've been there, I haven't seen any trouble at all, period. And uh, it's just everyone having a great time. So, you know, the energy of it is, is great. The entertainment's great. You know, obviously in the Black Hills, it's a lot of fun to be riding motorcycles through there. And uh, one of the things, you know, going back to the charities, every year we try to participate in, in one of the charity events. There's, there's multiple charity events going on with, within the rally, whether it's for veterans, uh, active, active military, and everything in between. And it's, it's just the, the, the energy and the camaraderie is, is something else. Sounds like a really cool event, Braden. I've been wanting to go. I know my parents have been up there, like I mentioned before. Maybe that's something we can meet you at in the next couple of years. Me and my dad could probably ride up our bikes from Kansas City. It'd be a real good time. The closest thing I've probably been to Sturgis is Bikes, Blues, and Barbecue down in Fayetteville. It's actually happening this weekend coming up. My sister's fired up. She thinks it's going to be a real good time. I also wanted to talk about, I know you invited my dad to meet John Paul DeJory, uh, the owner of Paul Mitchell, and he's also the owner of Patron Tequila. And you wanted my dad to meet him at Sturgis one year. What was the best piece of advice you learned from someone this successful in business? Well, that, that was one of the most uh, memorable experiences that has stuck with me. We had the, the opportunity. He, he was uh, doing a, a, a little charity fundraiser himself while he was at Sturgis. Uh, John Paul's an active uh, biker and, and uh, just a great guy in general. So we had the opportunity to sit down in a room with, I believe there was maybe 12 or 16 of us total having lunch with them one, one afternoon. And uh, I asked him at the end of the, at the end of the lunch, if you could give me one piece of advice or give yourself uh, at 30 years old, a, a piece of advice, what, what, what would that be? And, you know, I'll never forget it. He said, purpose before profit, always have a purpose in life and have the why you're doing it and working so hard. Once that's in place, everything will flow and make sense. Profit, profitability will take care of itself. And that's stuck with me ever since. I think that's some really good advice, Braden, and I'm glad you shared that with me in the audience. For all you listeners out there, I've heard this from so many successful people, and I think that's something that you should really take in and use yourself in life. Another question I wanted to ask you, Braden, it seems like you like to hang around a lot of celebrities at these events you attend. Do you like the fame of just being around them, or is there something more behind meeting this type of caliber of people? Uh, I'm probably one of the most insensitive people when it comes to uh, celebrities or fame. Uh, I'm not starstruck at all. I, I look at them as real people, and if anything, I always just see it as an opportunity to, to you know, learn about their journeys, where they came from, what they went through to get to where they are, how they manage uh, once they reach their goals, what's important to them. Just, you know, it's, it's always a learning experience. You, you get to meet such a diverse range of people and just really learn their stories. I, that's what I truly get out of it. It's not the, definitely not the fame or, or uh, the chance to say you met somebody. It's, it's more uh, who they are and what they do and, and uh, what kind of person they are. 
Actually, the last podcast I did with Barrett over at Holganics, he gave a great quote that's going to stick with me forever, and it talks about learning from other wise people. And the quote he gave was, a wise person learns from his mistakes, but a very wise person learns from the mistakes others have made. What do you think about that quote, Braden? Oh, absolutely. You know, it's just anything that you can take away, even if it's one little tidbit of information, advice, wisdom, uh, that stuff tends to stick with you, especially if you can relate to it. I'm starting to see that more and more in the podcast I do, and I'm really starting to relate more to the information people are sharing with me. Jumping back into you, though, is what I want to do now. I want to talk about your investing strategy. I know you invest in a wide variety of companies. What does the Hootie Group look for when investing their money into something? You know, we look at multiple different things, but I think, you know, breaking it down, I would have to say, you know, first there needs to be, you know, the opportunity. And I know that's a, a very generalized word, but whatever you're looking for, there obviously needs to be an opportunity. We then look, if, if, if the opportunity looks right, we look at the cycle timing. Where are we in the current cycle? You know, every, every industry and asset class has a general range of how many years the typical cycle is from top to bottom. And uh, if, if that opportunity fits within the right range of the cycle, then we'll have, a, you know, a deeper look at it. Um, probably thirdly is keeping, keeping things within our wheelhouse so we can stay focused and, and do things that we're really good at. Uh, sometimes becoming too diverse is, is a detriment to your business. And, you know, we've learned that over the years. Um, we then look at, you know, whether we're going to manage it, manage that opportunity ourselves or have somebody else manage it. And, you know, but at the end of the day, management is, is one of the key things. And, uh, you know, next, what kind of potential it has for capital appreciation. Uh, we're, we're longer term cycle investors. So, uh, what is this potential opportunity worth three, five, ten years down the road? Is it is it worth the investment? I think that's some really good advice in investing and something I'm definitely going to look at and take in when I invest my money moving forward in the future. Something else I wanted to ask you that I think is really important for our listeners to know is what's the biggest mistake you've made in investing and what would you have done differently if you had to do it all over again? Um, you know, I could probably go through many smaller, what I'd consider little mistakes over the years, but nothing really worth dwelling on. Um, one, one lesson, maybe not a mistake, but more so a lesson, was um, getting outside of our wheelhouse or, as, uh, as Kevin would say, getting in front of your skis. We're thinking that we were real estate developers when we're when really we're real estate investors, uh, we jumped into a couple different opportunities head first, thinking that we could uh, you know become become developers and really know how that whole space works. And once we realized how complex it was and and how much time and focus and skill set needed to be uh, applied to it, um, that was something that we realized it just wasn't for us. And, you know, it, it took us a couple of years, a few years to work our way out of a couple of projects and substantial amount of time and effort and um, 
focus to get out of it just in the first place. You know, it, it all worked out in the end, but it was a really good lesson for us to, to stay focused on what you're good at and not getting spread out too thin, trying to do too many things. And, you know, w- whenever we apply our, our, uh, our, our focus or our abilities and what we know to a new project and, and it's in our wheelhouse, uh, it continues to pay dividends. It's, it's when you get in front of your skis on, on different things or don't understand them. Uh, enough that that's where you're going to make mistakes and trip and fall. I really like the part about short-term memory and not dwelling on your mistakes. I think that plays a huge part of investing, Braden. I think people tend to let their emotions get in their way of investing sometimes, even if it's a high emotion or a low emotion. I think that really affects the way people invest. And you really have to have no emotion, I've heard, if you're going to be a great investor in the long-term play. Another question I wanted to ask you is what are some of the investments the Hootie groups are looking at right now into the future? You talked a lot about these cycles and whatnot, but I want to know what's next. You know, we're, we're continuing to follow the, the, the real estate cycles. We just made a, a few more purchases here in the past couple months. Um, you know, when opportunities present, present themselves in this space. So, you know, that continues to be a focus of ours. And uh, I believe at this stage in the economic cycle that uh, venture capital, uh, the venture capital space is, is going to be a, a, a good opportunity with the economy running on all, all eight cylinders right now. You know, the larger companies are going to need acquisitions. So a lot of these uh, successful startups are, are going to be primed for acquisitions. And uh, I, I think that space is, is at the right time to, uh, to be extremely uh, beneficial for, from an investment perspective. So that's kind of where you know, our, our focus is right now is in those two spaces. Tell me a little bit about agriculture. Are you guys positioned in any agricultural positions that you see a lot of growth in the long term? Uh, at, at the current time, we aren't. Uh, we do have some agriculture holdings in Brazil, uh, as well as um, through our involvement with iSelect out of St. Louis, uh, we continue to invest in, in in some of the venture capital companies that, that have to do with, you know, agriculture, ag tech startups, and that, that type of space. So we are indirectly involved in agriculture to some degree. I know you're not invested in any, but what opportunities are you seeing in agriculture today? Well, we, we attended the uh, Davos on the Delta uh, event that iSelect put on in, in Memphis in May, and uh, a lot of the portfolio agriculture companies were there presenting their, their products and services. And, uh, you know, I, I just think the whole uh, data technology space of ag, uh, making things streamlined, uh, you know, implementing blockchain into into all the different verticals of farming and all these new technologies that are coming out, the, the, the world, you know, the consumers really want more information about what they're eating and, and where it comes from and how it's grown. And, you know, I, th- I think it's going to provide the, the farmers an opportunity to diversify their operations from, you know, just being large scale corn and soybean producers to, getting a little more technical and, and growing uh, specific varieties for specific purposes and have the tracking in place with identified end users and, and everything that comes in between that, there's going to be 
so much technology that's used in, in, in all those different levels that uh, I think we'll continue to see that space uh, expand from the technology side. I think you hit the nail on the head with that one, Braden. Uh, that's something I think my dad's going to touch on a lot at his conference coming up in November. That's November 28th and 29th in Kansas City. I encourage everyone to sign up for that. I think it's going to be a truly incredible event. But before I wrap things up with Braden, I got one more question for you. I would love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that has had the most impact on Braden Hootie. Well, I, 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 I don't think I could sum it up any better than uh, John Paul DeJorio is uh, perfect, purpose before profit. If you know yourself and who you are, what you want out of life, then plan for it and go after it. It's about the journey and not the destination. And, you know, if, if, if you could live in that, in that mindset or that space, uh, it's a lot more fun and, 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 and you know, it's an, it's an adventure. I think that's a great quote, Braden, and I uh, appreciate that you reiterated that to our listeners. I believe Braden will be at our conference in November. He's going to participate in the mastermind session with my father and his friends. I think that's going to be a great deal. That's going to take place the 28th of November. I also encourage everyone to go to my website and subscribe to Farm Tank to receive exclusive information and podcasts sent directly to your email. I also encourage everybody to go out to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and follow Farm Tank. Um, That's all I got. And I'm just going to leave you with one quote, as I always do. Innovation distinguishes between a leader and a follower. That is a Steve Jobs quote. And that's this episode of Farm Tank. See ya.